to uh, welcome all of our first-time guests and everybody gathered across all of our locations and those of you joining us online. We're really glad to have you. Uh, if you have a uh, Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 5. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, if you missed last week, uh, we kicked off a, a new series of messages to begin a brand new year where we are um, walking through uh, one of the greatest sermons uh, ever preached of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. So what that means is that we are spending the next 11 weeks um, unpacking a series of sermons on a single sermon. Or maybe another way of putting it is it's going to take us 11 weeks to do what Jesus did in one. Which is like one more reason why Jesus is absolutely brilliant and I am not. As if you needed one more reason to believe that, all right? Um, many of you uh, maybe are familiar with uh, the master class uh, curriculum that's online in which uh, experts in their various fields uh, can become your private tutor in the comfort of your own home. And the slogan on the website says, learn from the best. And so if you want to learn how to cook an omelet, like Gordon Ramsay can teach you how to do that. Uh, or Christina Aguilera, she can teach you how to hit that high note. Or Tony Hawk can teach you how to shred it on a skateboard. Or Simone Biles, like she can teach you how to do a backflip. Although I, I wouldn't recommend doing that one. See, it's a really fascinating uh, concept and just one more reinforcement of the fact that you and I, like we live in an age where we have more access to knowledge and information than any other generation in the history of the world. And yet, I don't know that it's making us any happier or more fulfilled. In fact, uh, during the 18th century, there was this thing known as the Enlightenment in which the philosophers of the day, they said that reason was king. And the whole idea behind that was that they thought that the human race, we were well on our way to better and better days via rationalism. That, that one day, very, very quickly, we could leave behind the shackles of traditionalism and religion and uh, life would just be so much better because we'd be freed by this knowledge that we now have access to. Yet I think that all of us would agree that at least a surface level observation of the last 200 years and even the last two years has revealed that that idea of the enlightenment like really hasn't panned out. Because we have all this knowledge, we have all this knowledge and information um, accessible 24-7. And don't get me wrong, like knowledge is not a bad thing. It's a really, really good thing. Uh, but in and of itself, it's not enough. Like knowledge is like not enough to fix the massive brokenness in this world. Otherwise, we would have fixed it by now. And, and knowledge is certainly not enough to fill that void that exists in each one of our souls. Like, we need something much deeper and more profound. Now, thankfully, long before TED Talks and thought leaders and influencers on Instagram, Jesus climbed up on a hillside, and he cleared his throat, and he began to teach a sermon. And it's recorded from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And as we walk through this uh, together to kick off a brand new year, we're going to see that it is an incredible sermon that practically preaches itself. And it is packed with all kinds of transformational truth and application. Yet, that doesn't make it easy. In fact, it's anything but easy. And you'll read it, if you haven't already, 
And there's going to be a few places where you're just going to scratch your head and you're going to go, what, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? In fact, I, I uh, have known that this series was coming for a while. And so the last couple of months, I've just been stacking up resources, kind of like logs on a fireplace, right? And I'm just kind of reading as many commentaries as I can on the Sermon on the Mount because I want to read myself soul, full so I can preach myself empty. And one of the things that the commentators like are all consistent on is they just keep warning about um, uh, how this sermon can be easily mistaught. And that's a big deal to me. If we're gonna spend 11 weeks on it, I don't wanna misguide you. I don't wanna misteach it. I don't wanna misapply it. And we can read it. And if you don't understand what Jesus is doing, then it could be easy to either um, reject it or dismiss it all, like altogether. Uh, so let me give you a couple of examples. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of a heads up. Like if you uh, tune in, join in, come next, next week, where Jesus is gonna go is uh, he's gonna talk about next week, he's gonna talk about anger, lust, and divorce. Like it's going to be a whole bunch of fun. Bring a friend as we walk through that together. Now, here's what Jesus said, just a little sampling of it. Jesus says, hey, you have heard it said. That was a common uh, teaching tool that a lot of rabbis would use. Like, you have heard it said, referring to the Old Testament law, don't murder. To which all of us would go, got it. Like, not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to murder. And he would say, but I tell you, in other words, Jesus is going to up the ante, even if you get angry and curse someone. Now, Jesus isn't saying we should never get angry. He's actually talking about it uh, like a harboring of anger, like a, like a contempt. He goes, even if you've done that, you're already guilty of murder. To which we go, you gotta be kidding me. I think I did that on the way to church today. And then we go, hey, like you have heard it said, like don't commit adultery. We're all like, got it, check. Like that's not one of those things you just like accidentally slip up and do during the day. But he says, but I tell you, even if you've looked lustfully at someone, you've already done it. To which we would go, you got to be kidding me. I think I did that on the way to church today, all right? <laughs> so if you don't understand what Jesus is doing, it's going to seem impossible. Like you, you hear what Jesus is talking about, and instead of loving the Sermon on the Mount, you'll come to resent it or dismiss it, and, and many do. I uh, came across uh, an article online uh, not that long ago in preparation for this uh, series, and uh, it was entitled, Why People Hate the Sermon on the Mount. So that really grabbed my attention. And the article was written by a professor at Texas A&M, and she had assigned her freshman English class to read the Sermon on the Mount and then write a report on it. And listen to what she says. She says, most of my students come from middle-class, conservative, uh, Bible-going families. Therefore, I had expected them uh, to have at least a nodding acquaintance with the reading and to express a form of reverence in their written responses. But that wasn't the case. Instead, the reports revealed a combination of confusion, anger, and dismissal. So here's a couple of samplings. First paper, the student wrote this. This stuff, referring to the Sermon on the Mount, is extremely strict and allows no fun without thinking it is a sin or not, right? Here's the next paper. I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be a perfect and no one is. The next paper said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Well, gotta appreciate their honesty. Here's the last paper. In this essay, the author, by the way, that's Jesus, 
explains the doctrines of an era in the past which cannot be brought into the future in the same context. This essay now cannot be taken the same way it was written. Now listen, it, it can be used as a guideline for good manners. Good manners. So what will happen if we, if we don't understand the context, if we don't understand what Jesus is trying to do, then what we end up doing is we just diminish it or reject it. Now admittedly, uh, the standards that Jesus puts in front of us are insanely high. But we got to understand what he's doing. Namely, like if you're jotting down a few notes, and I highly recommend that you do, the first thing that Jesus is doing is he is really trying to reveal to all of us that um, the only one who is ever able to live out the standards of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus himself. Like he's the only one who's ever been able to do it. And so uh, Jesus is basically saying, hey, I've, I've already done this. I'm, I fulfilled these requirements for you. In that sense, this is very, very similar to uh, the Old Testament law that we talked so much about in our series in Romans this past fall. Remember? Where we said the Old Testament law was not a checklist. It was not rungs on a ladder that you just kind of get your way up to heaven by obeying all the law. What, what is the law? It's a mirror showing you your need for a savior. So in a very similar way, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus' way to express that, that old, that old uh, law, right? And he's talking about the new covenant that he has with us. I think the second thing that Jesus is doing, and this is so important to understand, is that Jesus is talking about his kingdom. That is a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew. The word kingdom is mentioned multiple times, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but all throughout the Gospel. And Matthew was primarily writing towards the Jewish crowd. So there's a reason why the Sermon on the Mount is put up front of his gospel and why it's given so much real estate is because the Jewish crowd, they were looking for a Messiah to usher in an earthly kingdom that they thought would bring about political emancipation. They thought this is gonna give us freedom from the shackles of the Roman empire. And Jesus comes and says, no, the kingdom of God isn't anything like what you might think. So what Jesus is doing is he is explaining his upside down kingdom, or maybe a better way of saying it is he is putting this world right side up. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if there is a kingdom, then that implies there is a king. This is the speech of the king. And he is talking about the values of his kingdom. This is not a list of morals or ethics that we have to abide by in order to go to heaven. However, with that said, I think that we would, all, like, if you really look at this, if every single person on the planet right now, nearly all 8 billion of us, if we could live out the standards of the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, there would be no more abuse. There would be no more heartache. There would be no division or wars. There would be none of that. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is driving at. He says, these are the standards of my kingdom coming. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Studies on the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, if you are looking to do a deeper dive study during our series, um, I highly recommend you get that book. And in the opening, the introduction of that book, he actually warns us of misreading or misapplying this sermon, and he makes this astounding statement in the introduction. <coughs> he says, if we could uh, throw up the slide, he says, if you find yourself arguing with the Sermon on the Mount at any point, it means either that there is something wrong with you, now that's a rather blunt statement, but he's talking about the motivations of our heart, 
or else that your interpretation of the sermon is wrong. And I, I love how direct he is with that because he is so right. Here's what I mean. If you read the Sermon on the Mount or during our study of this together, if you feel absolutely terrible about yourself because you can't live up to the standards that Jesus is placing, then you're reading it wrong. Now, convicted, sure. But, but it, you, you shouldn't feel like you're pinned down in shame. If uh, you read this and, and you get angry, like how could God hold me to this standard? Then we haven't yet grasped that Jesus came to fulfill this. Like you can either, you can try to be your own savior or you can lean on a savior. And Jesus says, hey, I, I'm your savior. I've come to deliver you. Now, because you're freed up by my grace, now strive to live out the uh, righteous requirements of the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because we are preparing ourselves for the kingdom of God. This sermon is meant to humble us, to show us our utter need for a savior. And the standards are admittedly hard. And there's a reason for that. This sermon is primarily geared towards what, what, what I might call um, a disciple, not just Christians in name only, not just cultural Christians, not just people that will come and consume content, but people who are apprenticed to Jesus, which by the way, is what he's really after. That's what he wants. And Jesus is directing this sermon towards those of us who would say, I wanna be a follower of Jesus, not just a Christian in name only. And I love how Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible, um, words the first few verses of chapter five. And I think it's helpful for us to see this. He says, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing Huge crowds. Why? Well, because he was performing miracle, miracles. He was doing all this incredible teaching and he was becoming quite popular. Here was, here was Jesus' response. It wasn't to try to maximize his platform or to get a little check mark by his name on Twitter. His response was to climb a hillside. It was to retreat from the crowds. And it says those who were apprenticed to him, meaning the committed, climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. And what came out of his mouth was the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, Jesus is not seeking popularity. He's seeking disciples. And remember our definition of the word disciple that we gave back in the fall is a sinner saved by grace, yet progressing more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Which is what makes our passage today, we're actually going to study verses 13 through 20, so needed in our pandemic-weary, politically-charged, socially-divided world right now. Because in this text, Jesus provides us with two very vivid metaphors that describe the effect that followers of Jesus, listen, should have on the world around us. We don't always have, but we should have on the world around us. Now, to set this up, last week, if you were here, Ryan did an incredible job walking us through the first 12 verses known as, it's like a list of blessings. It's called the Beatitudes. And it's a really kind of strange way to sort of begin the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus comes out and he says, he lists eight types of people that are blessed, but it doesn't really feel like you would be blessed if you were one of these eight people. Like he goes, hey, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are humble. And you read that and you're like, why are they blessed? Part of the reason is because we don't have a very good English word to interpret the word blessed. Uh, the word blessed in the Greek is the word makarios. And we don't have a, a good English equivalent of it. 
In fact, it wasn't really so much of a word as much as it was a salutation. Like it was something that you said to kind of begin a conversation. And many scholars say that about the closest English word we have to it um, is the word congratulations. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, congratulations if you're poor. Congratulations if you're mourning. Now, like, why would he say that? And once again, I think Eugene Peterson's paraphrase helps us to kind of understand this. Let me just read a sampling of a few of them. Um, he would say, hey, uh, you're blessed. In other words, congratulations when you're at the end of your rope. To which we might go, well, why? And then he answers himself. Well, with less of you, there is more of God in his rule. You take another one. Say, hey, congratulations when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. And we might say, well, why? And he answers himself. Well, that's the moment. You find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Oh, well, that makes a little more sense. Let me just give you one more. Congratulations when you've worked up a good appetite for God. Why? Well, he's food and drink and the best meal that you'll ever eat. And Jesus says, it is this group of people that are seeing the world through kingdom lenses. And I want to actually use you to, to impact this world for the kingdom of God. And I'm largely convinced that we've lost so much ground for the kingdom because there's been so many of us, me included, there's so many times in my life where I've just simply, I've not represented Jesus well. I've been a Christian in name only. I've allowed my fears to, to crowd in and I have not had the kind of influence and effect upon this world that Jesus has called me to be as his disciple. So let's look at our passage today. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? And the answer would be no. Like it, it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. So one of the first metaphors that Jesus gives is that we should be like salt. And he's drawing a distinction between, and as he's going to do this throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, between a Christian in name only and a true disciple. And he says, you should be like salt. Well, what does he mean? Well, the first thing, I don't know about you, first thing that comes into my mind when I think about the function of salt is that it adds flavor. Right? Like we've got salt shakers at every table. Why? Because it adds flavor to the food. Um, when I was uh, growing up, my grandparents had the largest garden in our hometown. And the newspaper came out every year and did a story on it. There wasn't a whole lot of things happening in our hometown. And, uh, and I, so I would go over to my grandparents' house, and they would always have fresh corn on the cob. And I loved it. And um, I remember that my record to date is I had 12 corn on the cobs at one meal. Right, like I'm pretty proud of that. And uh, now here's the deal about, about corn on the cob. Like unless it's like really, really good sweet corn, like corn on the cob without butter and salt really isn't all that good. But you lather it up with butter, and the only reason why you put butter on it is so the salt will stick to it. And then you get done, and you sit back, and the salt made it so much better. But never once have I ever got done and said, man, that was some really good salt. No, because salt is there to make much of the corn on the cob. Salt is never the main event. Like if I were to invite you over to my house for a meal and I would never go, well, the main entree to tonight is a bowl of salt. And you're like, oh, this is no good. See, salt is always there not to be the main event, but to, to be a, add some flavor, to add some enhancement. In the same way, a true Christian, we are here to make much of Jesus that we are flavoring of the kingdom of God. But I don't think that's the primary analogy that Jesus had in mind. When he gives this, because in the first century world, you didn't have freezers and refrigeration systems. And so they would use salt as a 
preservative. And so in order to keep meat from decaying, they would pack it in salt. So in this sense, Jesus is saying, hey, the world around us is in decay in every form of that word. And he says, as Christ followers, I've left you on the earth in order to see the decay morally, spiritually, emotionally, and you rush in to be preservatives of the kingdom of God. So how does that, how, do, what, how does that look? Well, well, that means, what does it look like to be salt in your life group? Like if you're leading a life group or you're just actively a part of a life group, what does it look like for you to be salt? Well, people don't go away from that group saying, man, that person really knows the Bible. They had all the answers. They really showed me up. No, actually, they go away saying, man, what a great group. Like I feel so encouraged and so challenged and so loved. Like I want, I want to grow. I want to come back. That's, that's salt. What does it look like to be salt at work? Well, people don't go away from you saying, man, that person just has it all together. And they are not shy about making sure that I know how wrong I am about my politics and morality and social issues. Where do I sign up to be a Christian too? No, they actually go away from you saying, I'm not sure I believe what they believe or see the world as they see it. But there's something so attractive, so stabilizing, so kind about the way they live their lives and treat others. What does it look like to be salt and light? This means that before you post anything, before you say anything, you stop and say, is this salt? Am I being salt? See, a true Christian will always make, some, will always make you feel hopeful. A religious person makes you feel condemned. And so Jesus says, hey, I need you to be preservatives of the kingdom. That was a fun little half clap. All right, so... Now, Jesus says, if you lose your saltiness, like he gives these alarming words. He goes, what good is it? Like, it's just, you're just going to throw it out, trampled and be discarded. Now, that is not a statement about losing your salvation. And I've heard it taught that way. This is actually more of a statement of losing your influence and effectiveness. Luke chapter 14, verse 35 makes it really clear that this is a statement about the world's response to Christians if we don't live as we should and look around that has largely happened and is happening. The world looks at our message and dismisses it because it isn't salty. Then Jesus gives another metaphor in verse 14. He says, well, you are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, not because you're self-promoting, but why? So that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Once again, to make much of, of Jesus. That Jesus is being extremely practical in his teaching, and yet at the same time, he's going beyond that. He's making a very clear reference to Isaiah 42. We just got done with Christmas. And we mentioned that, where Isaiah talks about how there is a light coming into this dark world. It is Jesus himself. So Jesus says, I am the light in this dark world. And one of the ways that you know that you're apprenticed after me, one of the ways that you know that you're following me is that you will reflect that light. That you will radiate that light to others. Now, once again, he says this during the days before electric grids and fluorescent lights. So when it got dark in the Middle East, in the first century, it got dark. You couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. And if any of you have ever been out west, like way out from the city, and the sun goes down, like you know what I'm talking about. Like the stars are absolutely so brilliant. It just gets so dark. And a little bit of light makes a big impact. So when he references the city on a hill thing, he's basically saying, hey, if you were traveling in the Middle East after dark and you, you were trying to orient yourself to your path, you would look for the nearest city. And it could be miles and miles and miles away. 
but the light from that city on a hill would orient you to your path. And he says, that's what you should be like in this very dark world in which we live. Are you living the kind of life in which others' paths are oriented by the light that you give? That's a convicting question. And Jesus says, I I want you to radiate this light. Now, I think there's a couple of things that we are tempted to do with this light that we get from Jesus. And Jesus actually says it. He goes, hey, hey, don't cover it up. Like, Like, I've ignited your heart. Don't put that under a bowl. And I know right now it is not easy to be a Christian. It is easy to be embarrassed by that. It is easy to be timid. I know it's really unpopular. Uh, Over the Christmas break, I was kind of burning some time uh, watching uh, one of the recent movies that got released on uh, Netflix. And there was this guy and this girl, they were starting to like fall in love and they were laying down, kind of looking up at the sky and they were trying to get to know each other better. And he said to her, I was raised in evangelical. And she was like kind of surprised by that. And he said, but I would appreciate it if you wouldn't advertise that. And she said, well, I won't, but I think it's kind of cute. That's how Hollywood kind of sees it. Is that this idea, and I get it, like sometimes it's like we just feel like being undercover Christian, camouflage, like we don't want to promote that because we're sort of ashamed of it. And Jesus says, hey, don't, don't be ashamed of that. Like let your light shine. But then we can go to the opposite side of that. And Jesus would say, hey, don't be blindingly obnoxious. Right, this is the difference between looking directly into the sun, which I would not recommend, or looking directly into the moon. Same light, but the light of the moon is reflecting the light of the sun. And we are to radiate the light of Jesus Christ. He is not calling us to be separatists, conformists, or antagonists, but to engage in society as agents of redemption and preservatives of his kingdom coming. See, light doesn't just, you guys are cracking me up with the applause, all right? Light doesn't just expose darkness, light reveals the way out. And everything about our lives should point to Jesus, not your opinion, not your politics. Every now and then I have somebody come up to me and they go, I don't really know where you stand on issues. Like that one sermon where you talked about like essentials and non-essentials, you didn't really say where you stood. I'm like, good, because I'm preaching Jesus. I don't really know where you stand politically because you say one thing and I think, oh, you're probably on the left. Or say another thing, I think you're on the right. And I'm like, good, because I'm preaching Jesus. And see, here's the thing is that Jesus became, there we go, there's the applause. Man, I only got 13 minutes left. You guys finally showed up. (laughs) Jesus became poor so that you could truly become rich. Jesus faced injustice so that we could be justified. Jesus humbled himself so that you could be lifted up. Jesus lived out these insanely high standards of this sermon on our behalf. He's not asking you to do anything that he wasn't willing to do, but he knows that you and I aren't able to do it in our own strength. But he says, hey, listen, if you don't enjoy living out the values of the kingdom now, you won't enjoy it in eternity. And so he said, begin to learn to live in it now. Begin to see this world through kingdom eyes. Once again, I got to lean on Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, he goes, the world today is looking for and desperately needs True Christians, not just name only, not just assent to a propositional set of beliefs, but people who are following after Jesus, imperfect as we are. And he goes, I'm never tired of saying that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would be crowding into our buildings saying, what is the secret of this? So this is a lot of what I've been thinking about as we begin a new year. 
salt and light. And I've been trying to figure out, like, how do I want to say it for, for our crowd? Like, how do I want to say it for our church? And, and this is about the best I can come up with, is that true Christians, like people who are genuinely following after Jesus, we change the gravity of whatever room we're in for the better. I don't know if you realize that or not, but you change the gravity of whatever room you enter into for good or bad, for negative or positive. Any of you have, you know, like uh, an Eeyore, a Debbie Downer in your office or in your neighborhood and they come into the room and every time they do, it just sucks the oxygen out of the room. Yeah, I'm talking about the opposite of that. This idea that you come into the room and you are, you are a source of life. Like you're a source of encouragement. You're a source of kindness. You are the, um, you're the exact opposite of everything that we see in the, nudie, in the media and online. And we go, man, there's something different about you. And that's the challenge that I want to lay out for our church family here at the beginning of 2022. And I think that now is a really good time for it because we look around, we're all weary, we're exhausted. We see everything going on. We look at uh, everything going on in the news. We're like, man, I don't control anything. Well, let me control the gravity of the room that I'm in. Let's change the gravity of our homes, of our workplaces, of our communities, in the city in which we live. Like, let's be salt and light. And I just want those metaphors just to be burned into your mind that before a word escapes your lips, salt and light. Before I respond to that comment on Facebook, just stop, salt and light. That before you react to somebody else's anger, you just stop, salt and light. And I want you to know what kind of church you walked into today, especially if this is your first time, we are not trying to attract crowds or merely make converts, but disciples, people that are willing to follow after Jesus in every area of their lives. What does that mean? Well, that means that we are not going to be panicked, overly political, obnoxious, angry, fearful, mean-spirited, judgmental, harsh, divisive, nor are we going to be ashamed, timid, compromised, or condescending. Rather, we are going to be We're going to be grounded and confident, humble, kind, loving, wise, bold, courageous, unifying, uplifting, compassionate, empathetic reflectors of the light of Jesus. And if you're in on that, go ahead, then put your hands together. Hopefully you're in on that. I want to be on on that. That's, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen these uh, TP stickers on the back of uh, cars. We actually hand these out in the lobby, and um, uh, it stands for Trader's Point, if you didn't know. <laughs> You're like, that's what that means. And uh, I want you to know the reason why. Now, this is not a marketing tool. I am not interested in marketing our church. If it was a marketing tool, there would be a web address or some sort of cheesy Christian slogan on there. But there's not. It's just TP. Why? And it's somewhat ambiguous. Like, it doesn't even say Trader's Point. The reason why is because I want people to see these, like, all over town and wonder what it is. And then actually go up to you and start a conversation. Like, I want somebody to, like, see these all over town and then see one on your car in the parking lot of Target and walk up to you and go, man, I see these stickers all over town. Can I just ask you, like, what is that? Or maybe the police officer, right? Like, he pulls you over and says, man, I keep pulling over all these people. 
with TP stickers. What is that? And then you've got an opportunity right there to be salt and light. I mean, let me tell you, and you just invest, and you invite, and you encourage, and I still know that's not, some of, that's not enough to convince some of you. Some of you are like, I am not a bumper sticker person. Well, fine, don't play, all right? <laughs> but I also want you to know this. Um, I'm like seeing, like we don't push these very often, but I'm seeing more and more of these all over town. And I just have to tell you, like when I see this, and part of this is because I'm the pastor of this church, I get it, but I do two things. When I see one of these stickers, um, especially if I'm in the car by myself, and I'm just being really honest with you. I, I see it, I go, TP. That's like what I do. I, it's awesome. And then uh, the second thing I do is I pray for whoever's in that car. And part of what I pray is I'm just like, God, I don't know who they are. I don't know what they're going through. God, I pray that you would, you would comfort them. I pray you challenge them. I pray you encourage them. And then and I just pray, like, God, help them be salt and light. They are representing your church around our city. Now, how do we become salt and light? Well, Jesus gives us a clue to this. I'm gonna finish out the passage. He says in verse 17, hey, don't misunderstand why I have come. I mean, Jesus says it like right there. He goes, don't misunderstand me. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purposes. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize what he just said? If you diminish any part of the Bible, if you're ashamed of any part of the Bible, if you say, well, I know it said it then, but it doesn't really mean it now. He's talking about that. And he actually didn't say you'll lose your salvation. He says you'll be least in the kingdom of God. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 20, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a loaded statement. We're actually gonna unpack that further next week, so please come back. But I will say this, that the original audience would have read that and they would have been stunned. Because the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they made it their full-time job to live out the law. In fact, they devoted so much time to it, they made up their own laws. So the original crowd would have read that and they go, Jesus, like even the full-time professional, like you're telling me to, I gotta be better than the full-time professionals. And Jesus is not talking about behavior. He's not talking about knowledge. He's talking about motivation of the heart. And then Jesus affirms the Bible. Now understand, the time that Jesus says this, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, but the Old Testament had, and Jesus is actually looking back at the Old Testament, and he is affirming it, and he is saying, like, hey, I, I've come to fulfill everything. All the Old Testament is pointing to me, and I've come to, I've come to uphold it and fulfill it. Jesus had a very, very high view of Scripture. I don't believe in Jesus because the Bible tells me so. I believe in the Bible because Jesus believed in it. And so with that said, let me just kind of give you three really practical handles of application, and I'm going to be done. If you're taking notes, how do we change the gravity of the room that we're in? Well, first, first of all, right now, gravitate toward his word. Gravitate to it. This is a good reminder at the beginning of the year. You're already consuming tons and tons of podcasts and audiobooks and, and uh, you know, all kinds of stuff on social media. Carve out a little bit of time, 15 minutes a day to just marinate on God's word. Listen to it on audio uh, while you're driving. Sign up for our daily Bible reading. 
You can read the Bible with us throughout the year. Get back to his word. Here's the second thing. Gravitate to his presence. And that's what we do when we come to worship together. It's one of my favorite moments during the week is when we gather together like this and we lift our voices and we cry out. And I know that for many of you, maybe you grew up in a different kind of church. And so the way we do worship is maybe a little different for you. Maybe you didn't grow up in any church at all. So it seems kind of weird to you. I want you to know very clearly, this is not a show. This is a statement about our utter dependency upon God. The book of Hebrews says that we bring a sacrifice of praise, that we come empty handed into this room. You've had a really, really tough week. This is your chance to fill up. That when you actually hold your hands up, that's not look at me, that's God, I need you. And I would say, I've said this before, um, that a worship is basically taking the affection that's already in your heart and aiming it towards the one who is really worthy of it and who can sustain you in the midst of the craziness of life. And there have been lot. I'm human. There are lots and lots of weekends where I show up. I've had a bad week. Maybe I feel distant from God. I do not feel ready to preach. And I look around the room during the worship time and the way you guys bring it fills me up to bring it. And I just wanna thank you for that. And in fact, our worship team, I think is doing a phenomenal job just creating a culture of worship. Like if you didn't catch... If you didn't catch uh, the December 26th service that was online, go and check that out uh, this uh, afternoon. I actually watched it again this morning just in preparation to teach and preach. And, and uh, you, here's what I say. You change the gravity of the room by the way you worship. So let's bring it this year. Here's the third and the final thing. Gravitate to the need. Listen, we are preservatives of the kingdom coming. Christians don't retreat from the hurt in the world. We rush in. And we rush in to be preservatives of the decay, to come around and bind up wounds and to give a cool cup of water in Jesus' name. And I wanna encourage you to serve, obviously, in the community and in the city. I also wanna encourage you to serve the body of Christ, the local church, that you are representatives of Jesus here. So when we ask you to serve in a myriad of ways around here, we're not asking you to serve because we're short on volunteers, although we always are. But that's not really why we're asking you to serve. Like we're not asking you to serve to earn anything. We're asking you to serve to be a conduit of his grace to others. Years ago, I talked about this analogy. It was really helpful for our church. Talking about spiritual metabolism. And that if we're gonna grow as Christ followers, we need a spiritual bib and a spiritual apron. So we need a bib to feast on God's word. And we need an apron to serve others. And so many of us, so many of us, we, we, we get lopsided in that. What I wanna ask you to do is, which side of that are you heavy on or light on? Some of you are all about the content. You listen to sermon podcasts all week long, like you're in, you're in 14 different Bible studies. You're, you're like in several Bible reading plans. Con and I love that, content, content, con the, bit, the bib, but you're not serving anybody. And others of you, like you're all about serving, but you're not, you're not, you're not very, um, you're, not, you're not spending enough time with God's word. And what will happen is your spiritual metabolism gets all out of whack. I'm just simply saying, balance that out. Feast on God's word, serve for God. Let this be the year, Traders Point family, where we stand out in the best possible way for Jesus because there is a weary, hurting, dark, decaying world right now. 
that is in desperate need of the presence of Jesus. And his spirit lives in you. So let's let others see it in you. Let's pray. Father, we want to change the gravity of the room of whatever room we are in. So God, we come to you today and just in a spirit of repentance, we just wanna say we're sorry. We're sorry for making this about us. We're sorry for pushing our own perspectives or politics over the name of Jesus. We're sorry for being a Christian in name only. God, we pray that by your spirit, you would enable us to be disciples, to follow after you in every area of our lives, to be salt and light, to be residents of your kingdom coming because there is a world that so desperately needs it. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here that maybe walked into any one of our locations or maybe tuned in online and they haven't been to church in a long time and maybe they're trying to recover from some church hurts or some baggage from the past, God, I just pray that they would know that they're loved, that we're so glad they're here, we're so glad they tuned in and that maybe they'd give this a, a second shot. Maybe they'd begin to see that, that somebody quite possibly didn't follow you very well and as a result, they got hurt. So God, I pray that we would make it our aim to represent you well. Give us the strength to do it because we're fallen human beings, but that's the kind of effect we wanna have. And so now would you hear our praise as we lift up our voices and sing, may you receive it as a sweet, sweet offering. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody says, amen. Hey, what I wanna ask you to do at all of our campuses and here at Northwest, would you stand to your feet? Let's change the gravity of the room by the way that we worship together.